Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, as we do every week, a brand new guest, a different style of martial arts and, and hearing their story and kind of what got them into it and, and what they're doing now. And today's guest, this, this is going to be a fun one, I think. Now, this guest is uh, not only is he a seventh degree black belt in American Kempo, he's also a boxer. He won the 2004 Super Welterweight Masters Boxing Division in Costa Mesa and also won four USA Masters Boxing World Championships and since his retirement has been a promoter for the USA Masters Championships in Las Vegas and Los Angeles. But beyond that, he's also very well known as a award-winning stuntman, stunt coordinator, actor, director, author, helicopter pilot, aerial coordinator, with over 700 feature films to his credit, including movies like Men in Black, Dunkirk, The Dark Knight, and more. Please welcome to the show today, Rick Avery. How are you doing today, sir? Well, after that introduction, can we just end it on that note? Because I think the only thing that could happen now is for me to screw everything up. I, I, there was a lot more I wanted to add, but I couldn't write that fast. So. <laughs> you, you, you led quite the life, and I'm excited to hear a little bit about it. But, uh, uh, I've been a very, very fortunate man. Very fortunate. Well, as this is being you know a martial arts show, and we'll, we'll get to a lot of the other stuff, too, I'd like to just kind of go back to the beginning like I do with all my guests and, and talk about what first got you into martial arts, what piqued that interest and kind of talk about what you know what got you going in your on your martial arts journey in your life well I started when it was fairly new to to North America I I was serving in the army overseas and my sergeant was a, a taekwondo practitioner and he took me off to the side one day after I saw him doing these strange moves asked him what it was and he taught me a basic snap kick and a, the basic blocks and a punch not much but it was my first exposure to something that was very odd to me, very new to me. Uh, when I got discharged from the service, I immediately started looking for schools to go train. And uh, there was one school in Santa Barbara where I lived. It was a Campo school. Uh, Paul Wagner was the person who, who owned the school. And I started to train with him. I walked into the school one day and saw these people doing katas and uh it, it just grabbed me immediately. I started training with Paul and he eventually sold me that school uh, after I got my black belt and uh, for $1,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a <Yeah>. bargain. <laughs> it, it was a bargain. It broke my mother's heart, though, because I, I quit college with six months to go. I was oh. going to Cal Poly and driving back and forth from San Luis Obispo to Santa Barbara. And uh, she said, you're going to quit college to buy a karate school? <laughs> <laughs> and I did, and it broke her heart. But to tell you something that's that's extremely moving to me, I went back to college after 50 years wow. uh, and graduated six months ago and got my bachelor's degree. So what was really interesting, it was it was on Mother's Day. Oh, wow. So 
if she was watching, I finally made her happy. <laughs> that's really cool. That's an kind of inspiring story. I mean, that's well, it's something to do during the pandemic, you see. Oh, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So what was it about those first few classes that made you want to stick with it? What really grabbed you with, with martial arts and, and obviously made it become a part of your life for all these years? Well, I had never seen movement like that. And the practitioners that I saw at the time, they were purple belts and blue belts, but I was fortunate enough to see two guys uh, practicing that had these beautiful Chinese moves, not typical of an Ed Parker movement. It was a Tracy school at the time, but the way that these two guys were doing their interpretive katas was more of a soft style Kung Fu, still doing Kempo katas, but it, it was just gorgeous and beautiful. And I never thought that I would be able to emulate or do any type of movement like that. I, I think that someone said at one time, anyone who walks into a martial arts school has a fear, has a fear in their mind. Uh, that's why they walk in in the first place. So I think the first thing I had to do was say, yeah, I was a skinny little kid growing up and obviously I needed some confidence and this was a way to get it. But that wasn't what drew me to it initially. It was the, the beauty of the movement. And since then, of course, uh, I owe everything in my life to gaining confidence and the abilities that it, it, that it's given to me. So what was it about competition? What drew you to competition? I'm assuming that obviously wasn't even in your mind when you first stepped into those doors. So what uh, what made competition jump out at you? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, scientifically, I guess I've got that risk gene. You know, there's a gene that scientists have identified. They call it the risk gene or the A personality. You know, skiers have it, boxers have it, football players, anybody who takes a, a small amount of risk uh, to do things is uh, both blessed and cursed to have this gene. And I, I don't know why I decided to go in and start competing, but I did. And I was fairly successful in it and uh, took it to all different types of levels in my life, obviously. Uh, it's, a, it's something that, that drives me. I'm a goal-oriented person who once he decides to do something, I, I go for it full bore and then I don't let go of it. I, I keep it for the rest of my life. So, yeah, like I said, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. So that's probably why I started competing. I don't know. <laughs> it was so long ago. I can't remember. Do you remember your first competition? I do. Uh, I, I was a blue belt and, and uh, I have I don't have very many pictures at all from back then, but I do have a picture of uh, my first fight my hair, my hair is all wild and <laughs> I'm throwing a reverse punch and, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. I do remember that first one. I remember not being in the best of shape, not knowing what to look for and how to plan on it. And I was able to win, uh, at that level. It was a lower level, but, but still I, I do remember that. Yeah. That first win always feels good. Obviously you definitely remember that one. Before we started recording, we talked a little bit about uh, you know some of your fights, and you've fought some pretty well-known people, at least within the martial arts world. You know, talk about some of those big ones that stand out. Some of those, uh, obviously, you mentioned some that didn't end the way you wanted and whatnot. But who are, who are some of those memorable fights you remember? Well, uh, I fought with Benny Urcades, who is a very very close friend of mine. He and his wife Sarah. I fought him at the San Fernando Championships. I lost after three overtimes. Uh, his whole family was there and we talked about it. I, I used to have a podcast show myself years ago and I had him on the show and we talked about it. And uh, Donnie Williams, uh, yeah, he kicked my, I don't know 
what kind of language, but he literally kicked my ass. The strongest kicker I ever went up against. Uh, Steve Fisher, who's uh, an old legend in, in the old days, he tricked me. We, we trained together a lot and we used to spar a lot together. And I used to have this hook crescent fake that and then roundhouse kick to the head. And uh, we we were down to the championship in Compton and we were fighting for the grand, the final match for the grand champion. And Steve uh, remembered that move. And there was a picture in one of the karate magazines of him kicking up underneath my kick and getting me. So oh, nice. I, I love him to death. Steve Fisher was one of the greatest ever. You know, Joe Lewis was my my mentor and he taught me how to fight. And and uh, I actually had to fight Joe Lewis for my black belt who was part of the test. Really? And uh, yeah. So I guess uh, I guess that maybe would have been the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a legend, man. I mean, I, I, even people who aren't yeah. martial arts fans, I think know who Joe Lewis is. I mean, the guy was. Yeah, great. I met him. Yeah. I, I got to meet him back in. Was it 1992 or 1993 at the Diamond Nationals in Minnesota? Uh, he was there signing autographs and taking pictures. So I got somewhere in one of my boxes, I got a picture with me and Joe Lewis. So that was pretty he cool. He was uh, one of the one of the greatest influences in my life and uh, was a real confidence builder and uh, taught me to believe in myself a lot. Not only me, but so many thousands of other people. And uh, he was one of the few people who ever stood next to me that I felt intimidated by. Really? Uh, yeah. But one of the kindest, most educated, insightful martial artists that ever walked the earth. Okay. I've actually heard that from a lot of people and he was just a, literally a genius. So that's. Yes, very that, much so. That's cool. So obviously you, you decided to make martial arts part of your life. You said you, you bought the school and at one point you were running two schools, weren't you? Yeah. I had a school in Goleta, uh, which is a nearby a uh, city next to Santa Barbara, and it was doing really well. It was actually doing better than my own school, but I just didn't have time. So I eventually got rid of that school. I had a manager. I just didn't have enough people to run it. Okay. So uh, it was doing really well, but I just didn't have the time for the two. Now, you obviously used martial arts to kind of, I don't know if you really used it to propel your career, but obviously it definitely became an important part of what become your career for, for decades. You know, kind of talk about how that happened. You know, how did the, the whole stuntman thing, what, what came first? Was it the stuntman thing come first? Was it the acting? What, what came first? And obviously, like I said, martial arts definitely played a big part in that and still does. Well, I, I had trained for about four years driving from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles to try to be a stuntman with a man named Kim Kahana who was an established stuntman at the time. And he had a little bit of a school, uh, learned how to do little, you know, two punch fights and, and 20 foot high falls and that type of thing. But I was totally unsuccessful in, in as much as getting into the industry. I didn't, I couldn't get my SAG card. I didn't know the right people. So I gave up and I became a cop. And while being a policeman one night, I had a call to, this is all in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a call to, find somebody who had had their their car vandalized uh, i couldn't find the car it was a white jaguar as it turns out so i called the station this is before cell phones so i had to get a dime out and call the station <laughs> and uh officer fratilla told me uh no you, you don't understand this is the rp the reporting party is john travolta and at the time john was the biggest star in the world he had just done saturday night fever okay and and talk about how fate or making a left turn instead of a right turn or getting in your car two seconds later and things happen is what happened to me on that night because I got in the car, I made a right turn onto the main street and the first red light I pulled up to, I looked to my left 
and there was the white Jaguar. Nice. So uh, I, I pulled him over and uh, John was with a friend of his, his name was Jerry Worms, an old school friend. And I said, I asked him what happened. He said, well, a fan jumped on one of my cars and, and, and bent the windshield wiper. What should I do in, in the future? And I said, well, isn't this your bodyguard? And he said, no, this is an old school friend who later became a cop. And I, I said, he said, do you know anybody that can help me with that? And I said, yeah, I think you should travel with somebody. It was Christmas time. And he said, well, why don't you, do you have any recommendations? And I said, yeah, here's my card. And so I gave him my card <laughs> and uh, he said, send, send a resume up to the ranch, which was just outside of Santa Barbara. So I didn't know what a resume was. I had my brother-in-law, an attorney, write a resume for me <laughs> and uh, I delivered it to the house. And I didn't hear from John for about a year. And then his uh, his attorney, Fred Gaines, gave me a call a year later because his, his mother and his girlfriend both died that year. So he was in seclusion and said that, that he wanted me to be uh, John's uh, person in charge of all of his security. So I hired a bunch of off-duty cops and we uh, had round the clock on his house and on important things like the Golden Globes or the Oscars. I would escort John myself personally. One night I was watching television. And Hal Needham, the le legendary stuntman, was on TV and the housekeeper was sitting there with me. And I said, yeah, I've been trying to do that forever. I, I, I would love to be a stuntman like that. And she told John that night. And the next night he said, why don't you have dinner with me? And he said, you know, you look a lot like me. And I think that that being a cop is really dangerous, <laughs> not, notwithstanding stunt work. And I want you to be my stuntman from now on. So uh, in 1980, I, I worked on my first, or it was my second movie, and uh, was John's stunt double on a movie called Blowout. Wow. So how many times did you end up stunt doubling for John Travolta then? Uh, I doubled him for about 10 years. Wow. Um, Pulp Fiction came around, and I got the call to double him. And I was, at that point, I was already stunt coordinating, and I had 30 stuntmen and women working for me on a movie called Beverly Hills Cop 3 with Eddie Murphy. And I couldn't, I couldn't make the day to go down, down and, uh, and double John. And that was the end of that career. It upset him a little bit, but it's really funny. I doubled Robert De Niro now. Bob and I have worked on over 10 feature films together. We got a couple more coming up this year. And we did a movie that nobody saw called Killing Season starring John and uh, Bob. And I got a chance to, uh, I guess, mend the bridges, if you would. <laughs> okay. okay. Wow. That's actually really cool. I mean, that's you know, De Niro. I mean, talk about two legends in Hollywood. And yeah, I'm I'm a fortunate guy. And I'm I'm assuming now after this many years, uh, what's the worst injury you've had? Kind of curious. Uh, I was thinking about that the other day. I've never been carted off to uh, to the hospital, but wow. I've had uh, three knee surgeries, uh, broken ankles, rotator cuff surgery, hand surgery. My hand's been broken a number of times. I don't know. You know, wear and tear for 40 years of stunt work and right. 50 years of martial arts and boxing. Uh, I'm doing really well. Question then, has your worst injury been from being a stuntman or being a martial artist? <laughs> what do you, what's been your worst? No, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I, the, the three knee surgeries I have go way back to my green belt test when I tore a meniscus in my knee. And instead of quitting the test, I got some gaffer tape and taped up my knee wow. and finished the test and then never went to a doctor. I just, I didn't know back then that I had really done that much damage. So uh, 
a few years later, when I was a policeman, it finally gave out and I had to have my first surgery. So I would say that uh, it, a combination of the two, one led to the other. But even at, even at my age with, uh, you know, I'm still doing these silly uh, home alone gags doubling Bob. We just we just did a movie called uh, The War with Grandpa, where I had to do these stupid, silly falling off a ladder off two stories and throwing my legs up in the air, slipping on marbles. And it's us. You know what? I got to tell you this. Years ago, people would come to me and say, wow, stunt work. That's really crazy, man. I, you know, you guys are crazy. We had a guy come into our stunt office one day and he, he had a basket full of tickets to prove how crazy he was. Traffic tickets. He said, I'm crazy. I can do this stuff. And I used to argue the fact, I used to say, no, we're all trained athletes. We rehearse, we take all of the safest precautions that we can. But if you ask me today about it, it's freaking nuts. <laughs> Throwing yourself down a, a flight of stairs on fire makes no sense at all. And it's, it's crazy. And I don't know what drives us to do it. We would do it for free. Not anymore, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy, crazy way to make a living. Something I've, I've always wanted to ask a stunt person, nothing to do with martial arts at all, but I'm curious, either you yourself or do you know any stunt people who actually enjoyed the TV series, The Fall Guy in the 80s? <laughs> I worked on The Fall Guy. Did you? Uh, yeah, I have a number of episodes on The Fall Guy and it was the greatest show to work on. Mickey Gilbert was the stunt coordinator okay. and his sons, his sons were the uh, assistant coordinators and it was a greatest show for stunt people because at the time, the scripts just had nonsensical stunts in them. So we would be crashing cars and jumping cars and, and doing the craziest stuff just because that's what the script called for. And this is back in the golden age of, of television when we were all working on shows like Riptide and Knight Rider and, and The A-Team. And uh, the 1980s was the best years to be in the stunt business. Nice. Yeah, I know for, for years, I mean, I watched that as a kid and for years I thought that's that's realistic. I thought that's what a stuntman was. It had, just like that TV show. I thought it was like almost a documentary probably when I was that age. So, well, cool. I tell you what, I have to push my buddy's movie. There's a movie coming out. Uh, it just got bought by Disney. It'll be on Netflix. It's called Stuntman: the face you never see. And my buddy, Eddie Braun uh, is the, I guess you could call it the star. It's a documentary. And if you want to see what it's like to be a stuntman, a real movie about what it's like, you got to see that on Netflix. Cool. I'm, I'm just, I just wrote that down. I will be checking that out when it comes out. That's kind of cool. Got to ask now, obviously we talked a little bit too. You mentioned the book a little bit. When, how did that come about? Obviously I, I know um, when I interviewed um, Tom Bleeker, he actually talked about the book a little bit, but I'd love to have you talk about, you know, was it your idea? Was it Tom's idea? And how did that kind of come together? For years and years, I've done so many, as you mentioned in the introduction, I've done so many different types of careers that all melded into one. People would always say to me, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book. Yeah, you should write a book. And so over 10 years, I would make notes when I had time and I never got over 50 pages and just gave up. And then I met Tom, who's a, a writer of many books. And we had lunch one day and he agreed to help me write it. And, uh, and so he would come to my house every couple of weeks or so. And we would sit for a number of hours and he would record discussions and he would ask me questions. And, and eventually uh, with the combination of both of our writing skills, we put together this book. It's called A Life at Risk. 
and I will definitely add a link to that. Um, I'm assuming Amazon. Can you get that off your website too? You can. You can get it at Amazon, uh, and you can get a signed copy from me if you want one by just going to my email, which is rickavery8 at gmail. All right, write that down, and we will post that also because. Yeah, I was actually going to order mine on Amazon, but I think I'd rather have an autographed copy. So <laughs> there, there you go. That would be cool. I will definitely look at that. And one of the things about the stunt world, I just wanted to mention that I was just reading through your your, your bio on your website, and it mentions that you're in the Guinness Book of World's Record. Uh, so let's talk about that just a little bit. That's kind of interesting what you're in there for. Well, I did a lot of John Landis movies after The Twilight Zone, not before. And uh, so he gave me a call. He had done the directed the Blues Brothers movie, and then he got signed on to do the Blues Brothers 2000 movie. And uh, we did it up in Canada, in Toronto. And at one point when we were in pre-production, he came into the office. He said, Rick, you know, I realize all of the car stunts we had in Blues Brothers. We hardly have anything in this one and people are going to want to see it. So why don't you set up a car crash with about, uh, I don't know, a dozen cars. So I said, okay, no problem, John. What causes the crash? Well, let's just have a, a cement layer in a highway that, that, that they run into. The, and so I started designing this gag. And then every few days, John would stick his nose into my office in pre-production and say, make it 10 cars. <laughs> then it would be, and now, now I'm just gleeful because I'm going to, my stuntmen are going to make a lot of money. We're all going to do really well. He would, then he'd stick his nose in again, make it 20 cars. It ended up being 54 cars. Wow. Uh, people who see the movie today, and not many people saw it back then, it was not a successful movie at the time. They look at it now because of CGI and they think all of this wreck is CGI. No, there was a driver in every single car. I, I even drove three of the pipe ramps myself because we ran out of drivers. They got knocked up so bad. So in the end, we did 10 car jumps and 30 i guess no we did 10 car crashes that started a small pile into the cement paver and then we did 10 car jumps and then the rest are all giant pipe ramps done at 50 to 60 miles an hour it's an audaciously huge and the largest car wreck in history and that's how we made it to the guinness world book Wow. So do you know what, what, what the second one is? What, what movie did you beat to, to get it? I don't, it probably was the first Blues Brothers. Okay. I'm guessing I, I, someone told me there's another movie out that, that eventually beat us since then. Okay. I'm not sure what that would be. Might be one of the, I'm not sure which one that would be. To do some research on that one. So that'd be interesting. And of course we got to mention, I mentioned the boxing a little bit. Now, how did that come about? Cause obviously did you, did you box when you were younger or did that all kind of happen when you were older? I, it happened when I was older. I was a kickboxer, of course, when I when I had my school, you know, and, and we started out back then with points. And eventually June Rhee came out with the karate chops, as they would call it. And then we started to be able to make contact. Later on in life, I just started to take on some boxing skills. And for the movies, uh, specifically, there was a movie called uh, Grudge Match with Sylvester Stallone and, and Bob. Yep. Uh, Bobby De Niro. And so that kind of upped the ante for me because I had to choreograph with Rob Sally all of Bob's moves that he needed to do. And then after that, I was contacted by a director who wanted to do a movie in Panama called The Roberto Duran Story, which is called Hands of Stone. So I was the stunt coordinator, second unit director, and fight trainer for that movie and got really into doing it an awful lot. 
a friend of mine told me about Masters Boxing. So USA Boxing is the same uh, organization that puts on the Golden Gloves and the Silver Gloves. They also have something called Masters Boxing, and it's for all amateurs 35 years and older. So I decided to test myself. I wanted to know how I would stand up to other guys my age in the world. So I started training and uh, started boxing and, uh, and I was very successful in winning a number of world championships with it. Since then, I've retired and uh, now uh, I'm a promoter of Masters Boxing. And we have two events, one in Las Vegas and one in Los Angeles. So what is it like being a promoter? I've worked with a lot of promoters. I used to judge MMA fights, so I've worked with a lot of promoters on the side. And what are what are some of the challenges, you know, compared to being a competitor that you see as the promoter side? That's a that's a good question, too. I used to have a radio show and I used to say when they'd say that's a good question, I would say, of course, (laughs) (laughs) that's what I do. Um, The um, the first promotion that I did was for ESPN. And and if you recall back then, they had the the PKA or the Professional Karate Association. And uh, so I put on two events in Santa Barbara. One of them was televised. And one of the fighters we didn't know had epilepsy and he got knocked out during one of the fights and had an epileptic attack and they had to take him out. And I Mm. felt such guilt and such remorse for being the promoter of that event that I never did it again. Since that time and over a period of maturation, I realized that we as fighters, boxers, martial arts, MMA people love what we do. We want to do it. And so my job now, my, my partner's name is Manny Fernandez. And we look out for the best events that we could put on for our boxers. We love our boxers. Uh, Las Vegas event already has 200 boxers signed up for it in April. And, uh, you know, uh, we put one on there last year and, and there's, they were so happy that boxers were putting on a boxing event that it's grown much, much bigger each year. So, uh, as a promoter, I had guilt at first, but now I have pride nice. with it. Now you mentioned MMA a little bit, so I'm just kind of curious now, as a someone with a traditional martial arts background, but you also did kickboxing, you did boxing. What are your thoughts on MMA and the whole, you know, how that's kind of engulfed the martial arts world over the past, you know, 30 years almost? You know, I, I will repeat, since you said you're going to talk to Benny or Kitties one these days, I'd love for you to ask him that question, because this is what he's going to say, say to you. I hate that the Bushido portion of the martial arts is lost in it. I admire MMA fighters. I think they're fantastic. They put their, I mean, it, it is tough. I, I wrestled in high school, so I know how hard it is to be on the ground rolling around as well as, as stand-up fighting. And these guys are in phenomenal, phenomenal shape. Listen, fighters are heroes in as much as you're in a sport that can embarrass you. You go out into a ring, watched by observers, usually you're half naked, and you have a possibility of being knocked out and only a 50% possibility of winning. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. So I lost my train of thought (laughs) talking about that. But the Bushido, it started out as a martial arts kind of uh, show, uh, if you would, or a, a, a runoff from the martial arts. And it has since then lost. You know, the Gracie brothers have left it. Uh, you don't see people in geese anymore. And of course, you wouldn't wear them anymore. Right. But ask Benny, and Benny will tell you the same thing. I just wish that there was more Bushido 
and honor in as much as presenting the martial arts attitude uh, back into the ring with it rather than the show that is being put on right now. And that's not to say I don't admire every single fighter. Right. That's actually kind of funny you mentioned that because, like I said, I, I, I used to judge professional MMA. And that's one thing as a judge that I always impress me about the fighters is, you know, maybe there's. 20 fighters on a card and you'd have four or five of them that would actually bow when they went, went into the cage and they'd bow to their opponent. They'd bow afterwards. And it's like, so it's, 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 it's not completely lost, but I definitely see what you mean. Obviously it's, it's, you know, nowhere near where it, it probably wish where we wish it could be, <laughs> but it, it's, yeah. it, it's good that there's still a handful that still show that respect and still do that. I mean, some of the traditionalists and whatnot, but yeah, definitely far and few between, unfortunately. Yeah, and don't take it from me. Take it from the greatest fighter who ever lived, and that was Benny. And oh. he'll, he'll give you a long speech about it. I'm looking, for, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. So, so obviously, like I said, lifelong martial artist. You, you even at more, you know wrestling in you know, in high school and wrestling as you know, so you've been around martial arts and combative sports your whole life. Is there a philosophy, um, maybe one or two, or something really important that you learn from martial arts that you hold true to your heart and and you know, kind of come back to every now and then? I would say is is never underestimate your opponent. Uh, you never know. You, you know, back back when the, we started martial arts, it was like having a weapon, truly having a weapon. Nobody knew how to use feet for kicks. I actually had a father come into my dojo one day and refused to have his son train with me because he was used to John Wayne movies and only the bad guy used his foot. He called it dirty fighting. Um <laughs> So back then, I mean, actually, I came out on top of my class. I was number one cadet as a policeman. But I was told later that they really scrutinized me. They they watched me because I was a black belt and they weren't sure of what a black belt would do. And and they they through my rookie year, they really paid attention to what my attitude was going to be. So, um, yeah, it's different now. You don't know who you can you, you would square up in this in the street. Back then, there were so many so few martial artists that. If you got into a fighting stance in the street and the other guy got in a fighting stance, you'd probably shake hands. But now everybody knows a little bit. And the only thing that separates us all, as far as the philosophy is concerned, is the spirit of the Bushido that I spoke of. As long as that spirit is kept alive by the instructors, uh, to bow to your opponent, to respect your opponent, to walk away from the fight when you can, uh, to be the stronger individual, that would be my philosophy. In your opinion, do you think, um, I know there's something I've always thought myself, do you think everyone should try martial arts at least some point in their life? I think that, I think that anybody who takes the martial arts will get something out of it. Anybody. I don't think it's for everybody, truly. Uh, you know, I used to give introductory courses uh, just to try it out with a few lessons. And I also found that over the years, and I, I'm not saying it was because of my instructional ability, it's just a statistic that's kept for martial arts school, but 80% of the people who take martial arts don't come back and don't maintain it. So uh, it takes a lot, a lot of work. And some people just don't have the sensibility for, uh, you know, doing a movement. Some people shy away from, oh, you want me to hit that guy in the throat? You know, they, they shy away from that. So I think everybody who would take it would get something from it. Uh, but I don't know that everybody is in the position that they would get it, would want to take it. It makes sense. So, so as an instructor and stuff, if, if someone were to approach you, whether a, a friend or just a, a colleague and, and show interest in martial arts, that either they wanted to join themselves or maybe they're thinking of getting their kids into it, what advice would you give them as far as what to look for in a school, what to look for in an instructor? Uh, yeah. You know, I would say 
first go don't sign up at the first school you go to it might be the best school but you should go visit every school in your neighborhood even if you have to drive a little bit you'll get a feeling of home at the right school and watch your instructor your potential instructor teach and get an idea of whether you're going to be comfortable with them there are really bad instructors out there and there's really good instructors and then there's mediocre and medium instructors like in anything else so uh, my advice would be to check out every school. I'm a helicopter instructor, and I tell all the helicopter pilots who want to train, go to every school. It's, it, it's a strange feeling. When you walk into a martial arts school, you, you identify with the first person who shakes your hand, and uh, you gravitate towards that first person. And it's the same thing in, in flying. Uh, you gravitate to your first instructor. And that could be a good thing, and it could be a bad thing if you hadn't done your research on it. Very good. Now, obviously, your book is off the table. So do you have a favorite martial arts book other than your own? Jeet Kune Do by Bruce Lee. How Jeet Kune Do. Great book. And then kind of a, wrap it up on a, on a fun one here. Uh, Two-part question. Do you have a favorite martial arts TV show and or favorite martial arts movie? Mm, well, since I coordinated the perfect weapon, I'd have to drop that for a second. It's a it's a timely thing. I would say that my favorite martial arts show right now is The Warrior, or I think that's what it's called. Yep, yeah, the Bruce Lee. Uh, yep. Yeah, the the fighting stuff that they do in there is fantastic. And back in the old days, just because of the spirituality of it, I like the old Kung Fu series, which I got a chance to work on. Oh, okay. Okay. Did you ever get to work on the new one, the spinoff? Was it the, the Legend Continues? Yes, that's the one I worked on. Oh, Did okay. it up in Canada, yeah. Very cool. That was a fun one, too. And I, I love Perfect Weapons, the reason I learned about American Kempo. So thank you for that. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, that still, was- still one of my all-time favorite movies. And oh, one, one other thing I forgot to ask. So obviously, you've been around a lot of martial artists. And I know you kind of talked about Joe Lewis. If you had to pick you know, one or two martial artists throughout your life that you really admire, really look up to, I'm, I'm assuming Joe Lewis is probably one of them. But is there another one also? I would say Joe and I would say Benny. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. cool. I, I, and I, I'd have to throw in Steve Fisher. Okay. That's, uh, yeah. You mentioned the, he's one of the ones you fought, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Cool. Well, I just, Rick, I just wanted, this has been fun. It's been cool. <laughs> you obviously led an amazing life and I'm, I'm definitely ordering the book. Uh, I, I want to check it out for sure. And I will put the link in the notes for everyone to check out. And, and it's amazing you've been doing it this long and you're still doing this. And, and I'm definitely going to check out that movie. You mentioned the, the stunt man, the face you never see. I wrote that one down and I'm, I'm, I'll be watching for that when it comes out on Netflix for sure. Uh, any last minute, you know, parting words, anything else you want to leave everybody with before I, I let you go? No, you made me sound like a hero. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it, it's been my pleasure, and it's, I'm, I'm glad you agreed to do this, and I will uh, let you know when the show is going to air, and, and we will be in touch. Okay, buddy. You be safe. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.